What's up everybody, GenXDibNet Investor here. In this video I'm going to settle the debate, once and for all, answering which is better, a grower, i.e. a dividend stock that starts with a small yield and then grows over time, or a shower, a dividend stock that starts with a beefy yield but then grows slower over time. So if that sounds interesting to you, then please show your support by hitting the thumbs up button, subscribing if you haven't yet, and clicking that bell notification. And before you break your keyboard leaving me a comment saying that better is in the eye of the beholder, I actually agree with you. Some people might want more yield now and could have growth as a secondary interest, whether that's growth in the dividend or from stock appreciation or whatever, and someone else might just care about total returns and not focus on yield, so better is a subjective term. Plus you need to look at your risk tolerance and your investing time horizon and such to really figure out what investments make sense to you. Anyways, let's dig into some surprising data to see what happened in history, and we'll look at some examples of various dividend stocks to gain some insights that might help you influence your opinion on things. Now a classic question that is often asked is what does better over the long run, value stocks or growth stocks? Growth stocks are companies that are considered to have the potential to outperform the overall market over time because of their future potential. I usually think of companies like Google or Amazon. Value stocks are usually larger, more well-established companies that are currently trading below their intrinsic values and should provide a superior return over time. Something like a JP Morgan Chase fits that bucket for me right now. You usually think of value stocks as relatively stable with low volatility, while growth might be higher risk with more volatility. But that's not always the case as I don't think of Amazon or Google as higher risk. So interestingly, a stock could be a growth stock, or it could be a value stock, or it could be both, or it could be neither. Dividend stocks are often thought of as value stocks, though they also could be growth, like Apple and Microsoft, both of which I'm long in and both of which have been great growers over time. And with that out of the way, I've got a question for you. Leave me a comment telling me if you think value stocks or growth stocks do better, on average, when looking over long periods of time. Okay, now if I had to guess, I'd think that most people would say the growth stocks outperform value stocks on average. But that's not what two academic heavyweights found when they actually studied it. No, they concluded that value stocks have had higher returns than growth stocks, on average, in markets all around the world. Specifically, I'm talking about the findings from Dr. Eugene Fama, a Nobel Prize winner in economics who is also a distinguished professor of finance at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, along with Ken French, a professor of finance at the prestigious Ivy League Dartmouth Tuck School of Business. Those two professors found that from 1975 to 1995, value stocks outperformed growth stocks in 12 of 13 major markets around the world. And the difference between the average returns on global portfolios was 7.6% per year. Of course, that doesn't mean that every value stock is going to outperform every growth stock, nor does it mean that you can't find incredibly performing growth stocks. And to be fair, growth stocks outperform value stocks over the last 10 years, so things can change depending on the period you look at and how the economy and markets are evolving. Broadly speaking, I'd say that value stocks outperform during bear markets and economic recessions, while growth stocks have more tailwinds during bull markets and in periods of economic expansion. But given that we tend to have more up markets than down, then why would growth stocks underperform value stocks over a longer period of time? Well, dividends likely play a key role in helping value outperform growth when we're talking decades. Take a look at this info from Wellington Management, Hartford Funds, and Ned Davis, leveraging some data from those professors I mentioned. This was analyzing stock info from 1930 through 2022, i.e. around 90 years worth, and it came to some very surprising results for how various dividend yield stocks performed. The top multicolored column chart shows the percentage of time that dividend payers, broken out by quintile of yield, outperformed the SP500. That means they broke down dividend stocks into five categories based on their yield, so the first category, or quintile, were the stocks with the highest 20% of yields, 
and then the stocks in the next quintile had the next highest 20% of yielders, all the way down to the fifth quintile which had the lowest 20% yielding stocks along with stocks that had no dividends. So the 67% you see above the first quintile column means that the highest yielding 20% of stocks have outperformed the SP500 index 67% of the time when comparing the 10 decades from 1930 until now, which is surprising because I wouldn't have guessed that high yielders aka showers could outperform like that, but more on that in a bit. Below the top chart are 10 rows of data, where each row represents a decade of dividend stock performance data starting in 1930, with the last row being from 2020 through 2022. We also see six columns, filled with numbers representing compound annual growth rate percentages. The first column are SP500 stocks as a whole, and the minus 0.2 that you see means a crappy minus 0.2% annualized growth rate for the SP500 when looking at the decade of 1930 through 1939, which means that it basically went sideways and a bit down through that period, and this includes dividends but not reinvested dividends. And then in the next row in the 1940s, we see that the SP500 had an annualized growth rate of 9.51%, i.e. it averaged a 9.51% return for 10 years, even though dividends weren't reinvested. I double-checked that SP500 data in this graph by looking at an SP500 CAGR tool on MoneyChimp, and sure enough it came to almost identical results. Like if I put in 1930 to 1939 in this calculator, then it tells us that the annualized return of the SP500 was minus 0.12%, which is pretty in line with the minus 0.2% found in the previous chart. If we look at year-by-year -year data in this tool, it shows us that in 1930, the SP500 lost 22.7%, including dividends. Then in 1931, it lost 44.2%, etc., etc. And when you look over the entire 1930s, we basically ended flat, but a tad down arriving at that minus 0.12% annualized compound annual growth rate. You can also remove dividends from the calculations, and so I tried that and found that instead of a minus 0.12% annualized return would fall down to a minus 5.5% annualized return. So those dividends were giving you like a 5% per year return, which would have helped save your bacon from being so negative in that crappy decade. Okay, and now that we understand what's going on, let's go back to our 10 rows of stock performance data. Looking at the 1930-1939 row, we see that the first quintile of high-yielding dividend stocks underperformed the SP500 in that decade, including the dividends that were paid out, because those stocks had a minus 2.36% annualized return over the 10 years in question, versus a less crappy minus 0.2% annualized return that the SP500 index had. Looking at how the other quintile of stocks did in that decade, we see that the ones with the best returns were the lowest-yielding ones in the fifth quintile, which got a 2.07% annualized return. So a 2% annualized return is crappy, but at least it's better than being negative. That means the stocks with the lowest yields, along with the stocks that didn't pay a dividend, ended up doing the best from 1930 to 1939. When we move to the next decade and look at the 1940s, we see that the SP500 had a 9.51% annualized return, which is great and more in line with long-term averages I'd expect, but then the first quintile of high yielders did even better with a 13.92% annualized return, which is awesome, and frankly unexpected. I put all these CAGR percentages into a spreadsheet so I could see what the averages were for each column, which is a reasonable approximation for overall performance per category, even though it's not exactly the same as a properly calculated CAGR over the time frame. And remember that past performance doesn't guarantee future performance, so just because one quintile of stocks did better or worse doesn't mean it will do that again in the future. Anyway, when I simply averaged the returns in each column, we see that the SP500 had a 9.69% average annual return versus the first quintile at 11.19%, the second quintile at 11.64%, the third quintile at 9.71%, the fourth quintile at 10.65%, and the lowest 20% of payouts at 9.27%. Or to say that differently, 
The showers, aka high-yielding quintiles, did good, faring better than the SP500 index the majority of time. But what we don't know is how well the dividend growers fared, other than growers tend to come from lower yielders, but stay tuned because some more fascinating data will clear some things up. Like one finding that's intuitive to me is that stocks offering the absolute highest level of dividend yields, i.e. quintile 1, haven't performed as well as those that pay a good dividend but not the highest, i.e. quintile 2. So some yield is good, but too much yield isn't as good, but could still be good. Who would have thunk it? I mean, I'd have guessed that the highest yielders would have some of the worst performers, but now that I think about things, I guess it also means that as long as those high-yielding companies survive, then when we have bad decades of stock market performance, then yield really helps prop up your returns even when stocks aren't going up, which is another reason to love dividends so much. And then interestingly, the lowest yielders, on average, i.e. the fifth quintile, only outperform the SP500 index 44% of the time, or about 4 of 10 decades. I found an article on a Goldman Sachs site that said that dividend stocks outperform non-dividend stocks from 1972 to 2014, which kinda aligns to seeing the lower performance of the fifth quintile of stocks, which included non-dividend ones in it. That being said, just remember that there are examples of stocks which don't follow the averages. Like Caterpillar, a dividend stock I'm long in, has a relatively low starting yield so I'd guess they'd be in quintile 4 or 5, but their stock has outperformed, even though they're in a quintile that has historically underperformed. Which then leads to a logical question, which is, does more dividend growth translate into more total returns? How much do growers help? Well, I found some analysis which looked from 1992 to 2016 that found that the highest dividend growers outperformed the SP500 the most, whereas the lowest dividend growers actually underperformed. So that means that higher dividend CAGR stocks have historically had better total returns, and that the ideal situation is one where you can find good yielding stocks that also have a high CAGR, which is hard to find. Or to say that differently, a grower is probably better for you if better means more total returns. But you also saw how a yield shower can also have good returns. So what you need, when, and your risk tolerance will all help define what's best for you. Okay, and the article that had this graph found that the magnitude of dividend growth actually matters even more so than whether or not a stock grows its dividend. Even among all the brilliant dividend-focused investors, most people miss this. Instead of simply being satisfied with companies that grow dividends, Investors should be asking how much they grow dividends. Companies that grew their dividends the most historically outperformed the broad equity market, and those companies with little to no dividend growth actually underperformed the broad equity market on a total return basis. So the size of the dividend growth matters, not just the fact that it grows. Size matters. That's what she said. Okay, now let's get back to the summary view of how the quintiles performed. The second quintile of yielding stocks outperformed the SP500 for 7 out of 9 time periods, which is about 78% of the time, while the first and third quintile stocks tied for second, outperforming the index 6 out of 9 time periods, or 67% of the time. The fourth and fifth quintile stocks lagged, outperforming 4 times each, or 44% of the time. Note I also found some data from an article on Kiplinger's which said that from 1992 to 2016, companies with the highest dividend yields underperformed the broader market on a total return basis, and companies with the lowest dividend yields historically outperformed, so counter to the multicolored column chart findings. So lots of possibilities for why they found different results, but my guess is that it's probably just simply different time frames. Anyways, one reason why second quintile dividend paying stocks came out ahead in the first study was because the first quintile success of dividend payouts probably haven't always been sustainable, and a great way to measure whether a company will be able to pay a consistent dividend is often through its payout ratio. The payout ratio is calculated by dividing the yearly dividend per share by the earnings per share. A high payout ratio means that a company is using a significant percentage of its earnings to pay a dividend, which leaves them with less money to invest in future growth of the business. 
This chart illustrates the average dividend payout ratio since 1979 for the first two quintiles of dividend players within the Russell 1000 index. The first quintile of stocks had an average dividend payout ratio of 74%, while the second quintile had a 40% average payout ratio. A payout ratio of 74% could be difficult to sustain if a company experiences a drop in earnings. Once that happens, a company could be forced to cut its dividend. And a dividend cut is often viewed in the financial markets as a sign of weakness and frequently results in a decline in the price of a company's stock. So in this case, a lower payout ratio means the company can grow their dividend more, making it more sustainable, which is better, and may help explain why it outperformed the first quintile's higher yields. Then I found this chart that illustrates the historical performance of the SP500 dividend paying stocks grouped by dividend payout ratio quintiles. So quintile 1 represents the lowest payout ratios and quintile 5 is the highest. They found that historically, stocks with the highest payout ratio, quintile 5, have not been the best long-term performers. Among those companies that paid a dividend over the past 20 years, stocks with medium and medium-high payout ratios, quintiles 3 and 4, have outperformed. Okay, now with that behind us, let's look at a few examples of different dividend stocks to compare ones with various starting yields and dividend growth rates to gain more insights into growers versus showers to determine what might make sense for your needs. I ran some simulations using my Portfolio Growth Simulator tool in my Dividend Spreadsheet product. I wanted to see how our portfolio of $10,000 would grow after 20 years of dripping based on different starting yields and dividend growth rates. I assumed a 7% annualized share price appreciation for most of the simulations other than for the rows that had actual company data in them. Anything that had a 10% dividend CAGR I called a grower, anything at a 5% starting yield or more I called a shower. So the first six rows are all 1% starting yielders, which is very low, kind of like Microsoft or an Apple. What you'll notice is that a low starting yield takes a high dividend CAGR to really move the needle, and Microsoft's stock growth is what stood out for it, with dividends just coming along for the ride. In the next range of 3% dividend yields, we start seeing some more material amounts of dividends, and we see how dividend CAGR really impacts things. Like a 3% starting yield, 1% dividend CAGR over 20 years ends you making $510 a year in dividends, versus a 10% dividend CAGR ends you making $3,714 a year in dividends. I listed Pepsi as it currently has a 2.74% starting yield along with a 7% dividend CAGR, and has had a 7.5% stock appreciation over the years, so a nice stock overall. The next range of dividend yielders are showers, and we go into the higher 5% range, and PM was an example stock I listed in here. I'm long Philip Morris. It has a 5.23% starting yield, but has a low 3.15% dividend CAGR along with a low 4.38% annualized stock appreciation, so you'd ended a 54 grand portfolio yielding $2,251 a year in dividends. The last range of 7% yielders are definite showers, and Verizon is an example in that category, which I'm not long in. VC currently has an 8% starting yield, but only a 2% dividend CAGR, and has had zero stock appreciation over the last 20 years. Thus, it would take you to a 37k portfolio, but would be yielding $3,532 a year. Feel free to take a screenshot and peruse the numbers on your own. Which of these is better for you depends on you. Like, what means better for someone in retirement might be more yield now, but with less caring about growth. Thus, showers might be more compelling whereas a younger person generally wants stock appreciation to grow their portfolio size, so they usually want growers. Bottom line, the most important thing is to invest in quality companies, ones that you believe can persist through tough times that have products and services that people around the world want, companies with good financials and management teams and moats to keep them prosperous. Personally, I like to have a combination of some showers and some growers to have a higher yield than the market average as well as have some longer term potential for growth. It's easy to fall into the trap of just chasing yield, and hey, sometimes yield can outperform, so I guess sometimes bigger is better. 
That being said, I've been trying to convince my wife that bigger isn't automatically better, and instead it's all about quality, but that's for another video. There are a ton of ways you can succeed with investing, so the key is to educate yourself to the pros and cons and risks and such, and then invest in a way that resonates with you, regardless of what I or anyone else thinks. Just keep investing, and don't get rattled out of the markets. One thing I've witnessed over the years is that lots of investors freak out way too much, often making bad decisions due to their fear. Like this week, Fitch downgraded the US currency rating AA plus from AAA because of the expected fiscal deterioration they anticipate will happen over the next three years, along with concern about our high and growing debt burden, along with the problems they see in our government standoffs like the debt limit and spending and such. Those factors, along with tax cuts and more spending, have all contributed to successive debt increases over time. Additionally, Fitch sees challenges related to rising Social Security and Medicare costs that we aren't addressing. Now when Fitch did their downgrade, some people in the market freaked out, worrying that the dollar was dead and stocks would crash and treasuries would become worthless, etc. But you know who wasn't worried at all? Well, none other than Warren Buffett, who owns over $100 billion of US treasuries. He said that Fitch's downgrade wouldn't change anything in how Berkshire is managed. The billionaire said that US treasuries are still the safest place to be in and that people shouldn't be worried about it, even though he didn't necessarily agree with what Fitch was doing, nor does he always agree with everything the federal government is doing. But that's part of the beauty of investing in a diverse basket of quality companies. I mean, you can still prosper regardless of what Fitch does, or what the government does, or whatever. And regardless, don't panic sell. There pretty much always will be crazy things happening in the markets, but strong companies will prevail. This year we had France's debt downgraded by Fitch, following months of civil unrest and years of overspending. And we've been seeing how Japan's demographic crisis keeps getting worse. Plus, Russia continues to fight in Ukraine, China continues to be more challenging to deal with, and AI will eventually do God knows what to jobs and productivity. So sure, sometimes markets will crash, but if you have solid companies, then will a crash here or there really matter over the long run? The more relevant question is will people stop going to McDonald's just because Fitch downgraded the US? Will people stop using electricity from your utilities you own? Will you stop buying yummy Tostitos cheese dip? And yes, I just opened myself up to the nutritionists out there that are going to come and flame me for mentioning cheese dip in my videos. But the real point is that if you think people will continue to use your company's products, then don't worry too much about what happens in the world, even though sometimes you'll get impacted. I mean, you can't control it regardless, and that's why you want a diverse basket of stocks so that one or two stocks being hammered won't kill you. You just gotta believe in your companies and believe in the US's future, or wherever you're investing. And you gotta have conviction in what you invest in, because you'll be tested multiple times throughout your life. I mean, take a look at this chart of the SP500 on Seeking Alpha to see what I mean. I started investing before 1996, but you can see that the SP500 was around the same point in 1996 as it was 13 years later in 2009. So put yourself in my shoes. Imagine seeing your portfolio go basically sideways for 13 years. Like right now it's 2023, and how do you think you'd feel in 2037 if the market was lower than it is today? Would you have the conviction in your stocks to stay long? Or would you be one of those people who start complaining about how the stock market sucks and stocks suck and you're just going to sell everything and hold all your cash in the bank from now on? You need to prepare for really bad stock markets, ones that can stay bad for decades. But if you invest in quality companies, then there's no reason why your companies won't eventually recover, and all along the recovery you'll probably keep getting more cash flow from being a dividend investor. And heck, look where we are now with the SP500 at 4500, and I didn't have to do anything other than not panic sell. It's easy to say you'll have diamond hands, but when Rome is burning around you, it won't seem that easy. Just stay strong. One thing that might help you stay strong is to be part of investing communities like my free dividend discord, which has over 10,000 dividend investors on it from all around the world, people like you who are just trying to better their financial futures. 
I recommend you join up right now, so that when the next time the S hits the fan, you'll have a nice support community to keep you going strong. And with that I'll end things, and I'd normally do a shout out to my newest Patreon aristocrats and kings, but I'm still all sold out. So instead I'll recognize my all-star Patreons, i.e. those supporters that have been signed up to my Patreon for over a year, and continue to stay on board. Also I'd like to thank Seeking Alpha who sponsors me, and I recommend that you use my affiliate link to sign up to their premium service, something that I didn't pay for for years. Whatever you do, please hit that thumbs up button, subscribe if you haven't yet, and click that bell notification. Thanks for watching, stay positive, and I'll talk to you again real soon. I am not a financial advisor, and these videos are for entertainment, inspiration, and educational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risk. I am only sharing my opinion with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments.